Judson Bottom by Dodge Zelko Chapter 7 Feel Your Fury Kindled My second day as a rookie, we got a call to 20th and Boulevard. Some tenant had gazed across the street and seen a man collapsed on his balcony. It was mid-February, the gutters packed with slush, the pavement entrenched between dirty heaps of snow. Fanged icicles threatened to plummet from the rooftops like desperate embezzlers. Beaufort and I were nearby, so we arrived ahead of the paramedics. We checked at the office whether anyone was working who could give us a key, otherwise we'd have to break the door down. As it happened, someone was there. A polite black woman so wide she literally had to angle herself through the doorway. She helped us estimate which unit the man must belong to, passing the key to Beaufort from an array of them hanging on a pegboard inside a locked cabinet. Beaufort gave the key to me. Go open the door for the paramedics. What about you? I'll stay behind and direct them where to go. Couldn't the office woman do that? He was helping himself to a handful of candy from a glass jar on her desk. Hustle, he said, and check if he's breathing. The elevator smelled like mothballs and was the size of a broom closet, its interior scarred with jackknife graffiti. Just wide enough for a stretcher, I thought. I pushed the button for the fifth story and rode up alone, hardening myself for the likelihood that this would be my first body on the force. An indelible moment, but I couldn't afford to think of it that way, not at the time. The doors clamored open. I stepped out, key in hand, and approached the unit the office lady had approximated. The hall was wallpapered, dreary, the windows at either end glazed in frost. No sirens had yet drawn the tenants from their foxholes to gather and gossip. One of the units at the opposite end was wide open. I could hear a TV and the tolling of pots and pans. I knocked on the door in front of me. When there was no reply, I forced the key into the lock. The brass knob was icy to the touch. Some movement in the corner of my eye stole my attention. I turned and saw it was a little boy, a toddler wearing just his diaper with a head full of neat little curls. He sucked on his finger and watched me with the same numb amusement of someone watching a squirrel scramble up a tree. Then a woman squawked, Daniel? and appeared to swoop him up in her arms. She cast a wordless look in my direction, returning inside with her baby, and slammed the door. All was still again. Walking inside, my first impression was of a meat freezer, and it sickened me how spot-on I turned out to be. I was greeted by the occult harmonies of the mamas and the papas. The radio was playing. To this day, California dreaming turns me as frigid as if I were back in that apartment. His balcony door was open. A few startled cats darted under furniture, like cockroaches do when you flick on a light switch. I didn't even get a chance to count them. He lay there, one arm reaching into the apartment, the rest of him quilted in a sheet of fine snow. A white death shroud. I knelt beside the body, shivering as cold gusts blew in off Lake Michigan. His face was crusted with frost, his mustache reduced to wispy gray icicles. The man was Hispanic. That much was still obvious. 
even though his face had waned blue, offering a grotesque contrast to his bloodshot eyes. They didn't bulge exactly, but they were fixed, with a mixture of awe and submission, on the firmament above. Corrupted by horror movies as a child, I kept waiting for them to blink. If they had, I probably would have drawn my gun. Ambulance sirens butted in the distance. I checked for a pulse for decorum's sake, then walked away to evaluate the apartment. It was a small, one-bedroom place. I gathered that he lived alone, even though there were several pictures of him smiling with a wife and kids. In his wedding portrait, he and his wife exhibited late 70s tastes, e.g. lots of hairspray, her coiffure carefully coiled and balanced like a great buoy atop her head, her white dress studded with rhinestones around the neckline. She held a bouquet of pink gardenias. His tuxedo was cornflower blue, with a metallic blue bow tie and cummerbund. I stared at them for a long time before moving on. A brown leather jacket was slung over the only chair at the kitchen table. Some empty Modelo bottles cluttered the coffee table. I made the mistake of reading the name printed on a gas bill. Jorge Leon Echeverria. I tried my best to forget it. His ancient wood-paneled TV had bunny ears pointing north, fastened with scotch tape. On the kitchen countertop, through the microwave window, I traced the shape of something inside, so I opened the door to find a TV dinner in a plastic tray. Salisbury steak, green beans, mac and cheese. The saran wrap was slit. A steak knife lay nearby on the countertop. Dinner, music, beer. A cigarette out on the balcony? Then what? A heart attack? Stroke? The sirens grew louder, until finally I heard doors slamming five stories below. Take your time, I thought, entering the bedroom, imagining myself as some collecting angel. My client's soul was waiting in a cherub-drawn carriage while I performed a routine audit, compiling a first-hand report that would wind up on the big man's desk. It was a sad, single man's room with space for little else besides a twin bed and a dresser. No windows. Something very monastic about its starkness, enhanced by a crucifix above the bed, a portrait of Mary on the west wall, and a rosary hooked onto an oval mirror surmounting the dresser. I studied the other odds and ends strewn on its surface. There were cheap black and gold cufflinks, an ashtray piled with butts, a wristwatch with a broken band, a new band that would never replace the old, and a black velvet ring box. I opened the box to find a set of diamond earrings, a gift never given. Never given to whom? A wife? An ex-wife in a show of remorse? A daughter? A new girlfriend? They were in the shape of crescent moons and glittered like starlight amid the rest of the drab surroundings. They appeared to be of high quality, despite the man's obviously meager subsistence. I looked at myself in Jorge's... in the dead man's cloudy mirror... Each jet of visible breath struck me as priceless, something which, if not so ephemeral, 
could be bartered with or even sold by mortals who subscribed to a quality-over-quantity outlook. How would the free market determine the worth of a man's life? Would it depend upon the man, and if so, would that negate all notions of equality? Does equality become zero value, the x-axis, with the line of a person's life fluctuating above and below? Would it depend on current events, the S&P rating of planet Earth at a given time? Death can lead to some pretty tangential thinking when you let it. I learned early on not to let it, ill at ease with the conclusions I was drawing. Soon, I heard the elevator chime out in the hallway. Wednesday comes and goes. I spend the evening drinking coffee, watching movies, browsing the internet, and going for short walks around the block whenever I start to feel drowsy. I want to be able to sleep the following day. I forgot I'd agreed last week to cover a night shift for Trossen. He wants to take his wife to Oneida for an extended weekend of gambling and childless honeymoon passion. Who am I to refuse him that? Although it dawns on me around 3 a.m. that I'm too old to be fucking with my circadian rhythm, I fall asleep on the couch thinking of Valerie. Ultimately, I dream of someone even further out of reach. I sleep in until about 11, then eat breakfast while watching Judge Judy. Eventually, I stumble outside barefoot to retrieve my copy of the Sheboygan Press. It comes bundled in an orange plastic sleeve. My eyes don't fully open until scanning the morning's headline above the fold. It promises an expose on the devious inner workings of the young Judson Bottom Radical. I collapse onto the couch, TV still rambling. There are a few paragraphs of preamble, then the article, if one can call it that, continues on A3. Flipping over, I expect more of the same. Superlatives, fear-mongering, hysterical forecasts of doom. Instead, what I find is a full-page photocopy of Ismail's original letter. There is no need to wonder where they got it. Wojcik is described in glowing terms as the, quote, ideal sort of decisive, undaunted official for, quote, mending this unprecedented wound in the community. I read through the letter again, even the large portions of it I have memorized. Now that some of the shock is worn off, I'm able to analyze it more clearly, see it for what it is, the self-righteous tirade of an arrogant, single-minded individual. In other words, a teenage boy. Though the letter is addressed to father and mother, it's obvious that right here in the press, the media spotlight, is where Ismail intended his words to end up. I don't see how anyone reading from a dispassionate standpoint, which, granted, is hard to do, can help but laugh at the goatee-stroking pretension, the almost cartoonish villainy. When I read it the first few times on my porch, I was so blindsided by the content I missed all or most of these affectations. But I could hear his voice plain as day. I could see him standing in the blustery parking lot with his neon vest, his shopping carts, and the completely sedate expression of someone who knows all the answers but deigns to live among those who don't. Dear Father and Mother, At the moment you are reading this, you ought to be feeling nothing short of pride and relief. I know you well enough to guess you're letting yourselves be corrupted by more secular emotions. 
Living under this flag has weakened our family with a sense of entitlement. We are Americans first, and children of Allah second. You have commented several times on a change in my behavior, asking me if I am depressed. The fact is, I am not as much depressed as repressed, spiritually repressed. This is a nation that touts separation of church and state, yet it ostracizes those of us who don't subscribe to the Christian heresy. Even my academic motivations are sapped, because I see where they will lead me and where they won't. There is nothing any university can offer me that will enrich my soul. My soul is the province of Allah, and Allah alone. I will not betray, or rather, persist in betraying Him, not to grovel at the feet of Western idols, money, greed, success, property, materialism. I have seen too clearly the dimming toll these aspirations have taken on you as Muslims. You seek outside the Quran, outside the guiding words of Muhammad, for solace and inspiration. You fret over the impression you make on unholy people, the shameless, pig-headed pleasure-seekers who will forever remain in bondage. It's the little things that have launched me on this journey. The little things, when added up like pieces of a puzzle, make up everything. You say I never laugh, but inwardly I do, for reasons wholly unlike those that brought me joy as a child. I laugh at the sight of people eating greasy food prepared by someone they have never known, probably never even seen before. I laugh at people flocking to a sale, heavily marketed, to spend more money than they would have had there been no sale, and then I laugh at their proud, capitalist auras when they strut outside, carrying purchases that will lose their novelty within days, if not hours. I laugh at people going to the polls, celebrating their democracy, flaunting their right to choose from two hawkish tyrants instead of one. I laugh at the coddling security of burglar alarms, fire alarms, and how inept they would prove in the event of an explosion. You say I never laugh. I say speak for yourselves. It is incumbent on me to play my small role in re-establishing the caliphate, the memory of which our people have allowed to crumble into dust. At the urging of Western coalitions, we even denounce that past. We have become skinny rats, grateful for whatever scraps are allowed us by the hegemony, choosing to forget we once belonged to a great empire. Once the Sunni were respected as a great cultural, intellectual, and military power, it can happen again. What I hope to enforce by my actions is that not only should you feel proud, but more importantly, mechanized. Feel your love for him revamped. Feel your fury kindled. Once you start praising God again, you will realize you are home. You have always shown me love, but that is not enough. Love alone has never changed the world, regardless what the pop songs preach. History makes plain that it must come down to war. Always war. If I was not placed here to be a foot soldier, then I have no purpose whatsoever. I pray that you will finally shake your needless chains and find honor again. I know he will welcome you back into his graces, but not without demonstration, not without sacrifice, and that is only just. Allahu Akbar. The gap in the liquor store shelf normally contains Tullamore Dew. Just to be sure I'm not mistaken, I read the print on the yellow price tag. Now it feels more like an epitaph. Here stood an affordable triple-distilled Irish whiskey, buttery on the nose, with a palate-delighting charcoal finish. 
I think about splurging on one of its more illustrious counterparts, actually gripping a bottle of Glendalo 13 by the neck, before deciding to check with the cashier if there isn't more of my preferred spirit in backstock. Old habits die hard, especially when fifty dollars hang in the balance. He's young, and I guess I ought to know his name, seeing as I darken his doorstep more than I do my own brothers or barbers or mechanics. He jumps at the chance to leave his post, saying he'll go look if another case hasn't come in. In the meantime, I browse the array of lottery tickets, colorfully marketed to adults the way candy is to children. A voluntary state tax is what it amounts to, a bond without any chance of payback. I happen to glimpse the security monitor, only to find two bikers are strutting inside, bandana-clad, tattoo-infested, wearing torn jeans and fingerless leather gloves. I whirl around, facing down an aisle of rum and liqueurs. The voice of my old compañero, Riotville co-founder Gian D'Amato, animates the place with an assertive good humor I remember all too well. A humor that sets people on edge, because it's so clearly the positive output of a charge that could flow either way. My cashier is nowhere in sight. He disappeared through a pair of swinging doors and is probably treating himself to a smoke break, knowing the choosy old fart at the counter will wait eons for his whiskey. Before fleeing, I at least consider the path of the grown man, staying put and retaining my dignity. But after years of public insults and veiled threats, of being tailed on darkened roads by anonymous assholes flashing their brights, the fight has gone out of me. I swear my picture must be passed around at meetings because every Riotville member, even the ones who were initiated years after I left, ones I've never met before and wouldn't look twice at if not for the Green Scorpion, the Riotville emblem, they all clearly know me on sight. Worse yet, it seems to be verboten to leave Mickey Fontenelle alone should you cross his path. I've been harassed in restaurants, bars, local festivals, which I hardly ever attend for this reason, and out on patrol. Even when I'm trawling the town in a licensed cruiser with a badge and a gun, I am not deemed impervious. That's because they know exactly what line to tread, what they can get away with, what I'll tolerate and endure rather than embarrass myself by pressing charges, thus opening the floodgates of evaluation into my past associations. For the benefit of a non-existent audience, I behave as if I've forgotten something, snapping my fingers in distress, doubling back to the walk-in coolers. There I hide, there really is no other word for it, among the cases of domestic, peering between the Miller light and Coors, watching Jean and his companion approach the register with a six-pack and a bottle of Old Crow between them. Right around the same time, who should appear from the storeroom with my Tullamore Dew? The cashier gives a brief pause, confused at my replacement by these goons clad in matching green scorpions. They exchange banter as he checks them out, adding four packs of Pall Mall Reds to the purchase, while I stand in the cold, numb to any shame. My main concern is that Jin will have recognized my bike in the parking lot. Whenever he glances around or watches the security monitors, I get the prickly sensation he is searching for me. 
My paranoia is validated when he asks the cashier a question, and the young man nods, gesturing to my whiskey bottle. Then he shrugs, and all three of them look around. For whatever reason, the need to salvage a few morsels of pride kicks in. I grab a nearby case of spotted cow by the handle. With a resolve that consists merely of not overthinking, I exit the cooler. The bikers are just being handed their brown bag when they notice me. We stand there, forming a grim, awkward isosceles. I decide I'll ignore them, joking to the cashier that a man can't live on whiskey alone. Gian and his companion loiter, taking up the whole counter, opening a newly bought pack of smokes and sliding one each behind their ears. Still drink that microbrew shit, I see. Gian mumbles without looking at me. Still on that piss water, I say, hoping to sound just as cool and indifferent. What can I say? I'm a man of simple tastes. With that, he wishes the cashier a good afternoon. The two men walk out with their purchases in tow like well-meaning, well-mannered citizens. The cashier checks me out, fishing for praise that he was able to track down the Tullamore. The computer takes an ungodly amount of time to read my card, followed by a paper jam in the printer. After he futzes with it a bit, I insist I don't need a receipt or a bag. The whiskey will fit neatly in my leather side tote. As for this enormous cube of beer I had no intention of buying, it will be a bitch to transport on the Sportster. I'll have to remove all the bottles and try stuffing them in the tote individually. Outside, I'm relieved to find my bike still standing upright. As I said, they know exactly what line to tread. The only evidence of their tampering is a pink furry keychain, either a cat or a monkey, dangling from my handlebar. I don't give it a close examination. Rather, I chuck it aside, same as always. If I kept every tchotchke that appeared on my bike, I'd be hoarding an oppressive collection by now. I open up my case of beer and set to work filling the tote. At some point, I go back to bed, setting my alarm for 9.30. When that time comes, I crack a spotted cow and jump in the shower. The effect of a hot shower is not optimized without a cold beer in hand. This is something Rhonda could never wrap her head around, those juxtaposed sensations within and without. It's a luxury they probably offer in some forward-thinking Swedish spa. Her only focus was the empty bottles I left behind on the shelf beside the shampoo and shave gel. Toweling off, I roam into the living room, a second towel wrapped around my waist. The ten o'clock news is on for background noise, but a few words penetrate my daydreams. The chiron along the bottom of the screen reads, Officers shot at Dallas protest. I search for the remote and turn up the volume. The broadcaster at the scene is explaining that sniper shots rang out during a Black Lives Matter protest, targeting several police officers. The exact amount of casualties cannot be determined. This is all unfolding in real time. The camera is wobbly, facing down a lamp-lit street oppressed by skyscrapers. A cordon of squad cars is visible. Apparently the gunmen, or gunmen, have yet to be apprehended. 
Attempts are being made at negotiation. I'm absorbing all of this, naked and wet, when my phone rings. I expect Gavin, but it's Wojcik who asks, Are you seeing this? He was only aiming at police? Seems that way. They don't know all the details yet. The first shot was fired an hour ago. He emits a bronchial wheeze between every sentence. This is terrible, Mickey. No shit. I mean, there are going to be copycats. One thing at a time, Chief. You're headed in? Leaving soon. All right, I'll see you in the morning then. I'm coming in early. We hang up, ending a perfectly useless exchange. I walk away from the TV to dress. When I leave, the town feels empty, inactive save for a blue glow dancing in most of the windows, like the homes are inhabited by electrically fed ghosts. Arriving at the station, I find everyone in-house standing around with dazed, angry looks on their faces, fixated by the 38-inch screen mounted on the wall. To my surprise, Flipsy is at his cubicle, arms folded, wearing a pair of gray sweatpants and a black bomber jacket. He's busy conferring with Officer Stoffregen. She is chestnut-haired, fairly plump, inordinately kind and popular with the locals, making her the de facto poster girl at police fundraisers. Any updates in the last half hour? I ask them. They think he's holed up in a car park, Stoffregen says. They haven't got a line to him yet. Few witnesses confirmed he's a black male, Flipsy adds. I set my backpack on the floor, unsure why I brought it tonight except out of habit when all I'll be doing is patrols. Stoffregen says in a quiet, rueful tone, It was only a matter of time before it came to this. The hell's that supposed to mean? Flipsy pounces. She blinks at him, believing she only stated the obvious. Well, it's retaliation. At least in this guy's mind. Two more cops were caught on video this week alone, executing black men. One in Minnesota, one, I think, in Louisiana. Executing my ass, says Flipsy. Those guys were armed. It stands up to Graham. He's referring, of course, to Graham versus Connor, the 89 Supreme Court case that is pounded into Academy recruits. The long and short of it goes, DeThorne Graham was driving around with a friend when Graham's type 1 diabetes triggered an insulin reaction. They pulled over at a convenience store so he could buy a bottle of orange juice. Once inside, he decided the line was too long, so he ditched the juice idea and ran back to the car. A patrol officer, Connor, happened to be present in the same parking lot and wondered if he hadn't just witnessed a robbery. He tailed the car, pulled it over, and had the occupants wait while he contacted the convenience store. In the meantime, Graham's attack worsened. He got out of the car, circled it twice, and began convulsing on the curb. Connor assumed narcotics were at play. When backup arrived, the diabetic was detained in handcuffs. All attempts by the friend to explain his condition went ignored. During the altercation, Graham sustained a broken foot, bruises on his forehead, cuts on his wrists, an injured shoulder, and allegedly a permanent ringing in his right ear. He filed suit through the district court, Appellate, and SCOTUS, but his petition was roundly defeated each time. 
Chief Justice Rehnquist opined that, given the situation from Connor's vantage point, the officer's response had been, quote, objectively reasonable. And so, this case went on the books as the prevailing metric for whether a cop's use of force is justified, particularly when it results in bodily harm or fatality. I can tell Stoffregan wants to be diplomatic and defuse the situation. Policing 101, in theory. I'm just saying there's a lot of racial tension in the air right now. Racial tension, mocks Flipsy, who is perplexing in his sweatpants, but not enough that I care to ask what he's doing here. I told everyone right at the beginning. This Black Lives Matter, it does nothing but incite violence. It advocates so-called racial tension, can't you see? And now look what it's come to. Innocent cops, dead in the street. Before long, Stoff Reagan and I and the rest of the night shift head to the garage and split off on our various beats. Out of curiosity, but also to keep my mind focused, I find an AM news station and chart eventual negotiations with a suspect in the car park. He reportedly taunts Dallas police over the phone, sings to them, asks how many white pigs he's killed. My CB hums with commentary between officers. It occurs to me that Charlie Manson must be tickled if he's watching this in prison right now. Judging by the news feed alone, Helter Skelter is coming to fruition, just like his acid-warped mind prophesied all those years ago.